All right, well, I'm going to invite you to join me, and let's pray this morning as we turn our hearts to the Lord and uh, his word for us in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I have just thoroughly enjoyed this series so far, preparing for it each week and sharing these messages with you. Uh, Peter has some incredible instruction for us as God's people in this world, and we're going to see more of that here together this morning. So let's pray and ask God's blessing over our message today. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the chance to be gathered together this morning as your people. Lord, we, uh, we like those original readers of this letter, often feel like, like exiles in this world, uh, far from home and, and uh, longing for our, our true heavenly home and, and all of the promises that will be ours one day. And, and yet, Lord, you have called us to this time, to this place, to live here, to make an impact for you and for your kingdom. And so, Lord, you have given us this great letter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Apostle Peter, to encourage us, to equip us, to instruct us, so that we can live faithfully as your people in this world. And so I pray that once again, Lord, today as we look to this letter and look to the instruction that you have for us here, that it might grip our hearts, that it might capture our, our love and our spirits and our devotion and, uh, and that we might seek to live for you and honor you with our lives more faithfully as a result of our study here this morning. So we just pray all this in your great name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. If someone were to ask you, what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? What would you share with them? Right? If you were talking to somebody, maybe they didn't have any familiarity with Scripture or the church or Christianity, and they said, you know, hey, Aaron, tell me, what, what is the essence? What are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? How would you answer that question? You know, when you think about the topic of fundamentals, it's, it's really essential to know the, the core beliefs of, of Christianity. And when you talk about fundamentals, whether, whether you're talking about religion or any other area of life, to, to have a basic understanding of the essentials, the fundamentals, is so important if you're going to grow and mature. Uh, again, not just in spirituality, but in any area of life, right? Whether you're talking about school or your hobby or your career, right? Uh, until you get those fundamentals in place, you, you really can't grow and take those next steps. Uh, I've seen this, for example, over the years as I've had the opportunity to, to be involved in coaching youth sports here in our community, my, my daughter, Addie, from the time she could start playing sports, she's been playing basically everything there is to play, right? And so over the years, I've, I've coached almost everything in this community. I've coached volleyball. I've coached basketball. I've coached softball. I've coached some tennis recently, right? And, uh, and it's just a great joy. I've loved coaching these young kids. And, and especially when you're coaching young kids, what you're really trying to do is instill in them the fundamentals, Right? If you're going to be success, successful at any sport, you have to get those fundamental building blocks in place before you can grow to those, those next levels. My, my daughter, Addie, this 
past year has been playing varsity tennis here at uh, Chisago Lakes High School. And it's been really fun being a part of the, the tennis team and the tennis season and working with the team, helping the girls out. Some of you have come and watched some of Addie's matches this fall, and that's been really fun. And, and if you've been to any of those matches, you'll know that I'm often not very social because, you know, I'm kind of stuck in the court watching the matches and I'm real intense, you know, watching my daughter. But you may have heard me yell out certain things in the matches. For example, I'll, I'll yell out to Addie, if I, if, especially if she's struggling in a match. I'll say things like, Addie, trust your swing. Now, when she hears that, she knows what I mean. She hears in her mind all of the things that we've been working on for two, three years in the fundamentals of her swing. Now, there's a lot that goes into a, a correct tennis swing. There's a lot of pieces and parts of it. But when I say to Addie in the middle of a match, trust your swing, she hears, okay, go back to the basics. Stick to the fundamentals, okay? What, is, what have we worked on? What has dad taught me? What have my coaches taught me? Let's get back to the basics, and that will help me if I'm struggling here in the midst of a match. I'll, I'll often yell out things like, Addie, stick to the game plan. Now, again, she knows what that means. When, when we talk about sticking to the game plan, we have a few key things that we're continually working on in, in her game, right? We, we tell Addie, look at how do you win in tennis? You, you hit it where they're not, right? So again, keep your, keep your opponent moving. Hit the ball where they're not. Mix up the shot selection, right? These are just some basic fundamental strategy things that when I say stick to the game plan, she hears and understands they mean this, 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 and this, right? It's the basics, the essentials. And, and so again, anytime you want to grow and take those next steps, whether you're talking school, sports, hobby, career, right, you have to know the basics, and it's an understanding of the fundamentals that will help you take those next steps in your growth and your maturity. And, and I think that is what the Apostle Peter has in mind in our passage this morning. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Peter really is, is going to take the role of a, of a good coach, and as a good coach, he's going to remind us of the fundamentals of our faith, the fundamentals of God's faithful people as we live as his elect exiles in this world. Peter's going to bring us back to the basics. He's basically, in our passage today, going to coach us up on the basics of who we are and what God desires for us. Peter's going to basically say to us as Christians, trust your swing, stick to the game plan, right? He's going to bring us back to those, to those fundamentals. If you remember last week, last week in our passage, we saw Peter commission us, right? He's commissioned us to be God's people in this world. So we've been commissioned. Now today, he's going to bring us back to what's the essence, what's the heart, what are the fundamentals of, of what you're called to carry out and live in this world. So today, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. And again, here we find what Peter highlights as some of the fundamentals, the basics of our faith. Let's read our passage, and then I want to come back and I want to highlight three fundamentals that we see here that Peter encourages us in. Starting in verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, friends, here in our passage, Peter brings us back to the basics. He he brings us back to what are the fundamental, essential building blocks of the Christian faith. I want to highlight three of these for us here that we see in this passage. Peter begins, number one, by reminding us, as God's people, we've been set apart for love. We've been set apart for love. Pastor David Helm, a pastor in the Chicago area, shares the story of when he was a young boy, he often went to visit his father who worked uh, as, uh, in the uh, sports uh, area of Judson College. Judson College is just, uh, just west of the Chicago area, right along the Fox River there, if you're familiar with that area of uh, Chicago land. And Pastor Helm, when he was a little boy, he used to go and visit his father who worked in administration there at Judson College. And, and he shares that when he was a kid, he often saw a very peculiar scene outside his father's window. His father's window, which overlooked the, the Fox River, he, he recalls that he often saw as a little boy a young man who was down by the river on a regular basis feeding the ducks there in the Fox River. And this young man, a 20-something young man who was a student there at the college, he was there almost every day. In fact, every time David went to visit his father, he would look out his office and he would see this young man coming and feeding the ducks. Even in the winter, in the midst of the harsh conditions and in the midst of the weather and the snowstorms, this young man would be out there feeding the ducks. In the dead of winter, when the, when the river started freezing over, this young man would be out there and he would have a shovel and he would be clearing the ice from the water to allow the, the ducks to have a place to swim. And, and Pastor Helm shares that when he was a little boy one day, he asked his father, Dad, who is this guy out here who, who's always taking care of the ducks? And his father said, well, son, the, the story goes that this young man recently returned from the Vietnam War. This took place in the, in the early 1970s. And, and his father said that he was, a, he was a student who was recently returned from Vietnam. And David Helm goes on to share that his father recalled the story for him of how this young man, when he was a soldier over in Vietnam, one day his unit was crossing what they thought was an abandoned field and his unit was ambushed from the jungles around the field. And the Viet Cong opened fire on his unit and basically mowed down all of his fellow soldiers. And this young man himself had been shot and he was wounded and he looked around and he noticed that all of his fellow soldiers were dead. And being wounded himself, he thought that his best chance to survive the attack was to just remain with his face down in the mud of this field pretending he was dead. And suddenly the Viet Cong came out of the woods 
And they started walking through the field and going up to each of the fallen soldiers one at a time and putting an extra bullet in them to make sure they were dead. They walked across the field from body to body, shooting one after another. And this young man thought that he was also soon to perish. All of a sudden, as he was laying there in the midst of the field, a a covey of ducks came flying over the field. And, And the Viet Cong soldiers, they saw these ducks flying over the field, and they got all excited seeing the ducks, and they turned their attention away from the bodies in the field to the ducks flying across the sky, and they started running across the field, shooting at the ducks. And they ended up chasing the ducks all the way across the field, and in their excitement over the ducks, they forgot about the soldiers there. And it was because of those ducks that this young man's life was spared. And so when he returned to the United States, this young man had a special love for the ducks. David Helm's father said he loves because he lives. And you know, I think what the Apostle Peter is getting at in our passage this morning conveys something very similar to that. You see, the Apostle Peter here reminds us that for a Christian, for those of us who know Jesus, a life committed to loving others is the natural result of Jesus' love for us. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in that simple passage that so many of us have committed to memory, we understand what John is talking about. He's he's describing there the reality of our fallenness, our sinfulness, our rebellion against our creator God, and and how our sin caused this separation between us and God, and and how the only way to bridge that separation, there, there was nothing that we could do in our own efforts, in our own power, in our own goodness to bridge that separation, but God in his great love, in his amazing grace, God bridged that gap. God took on flesh. God became a man. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He went to the cross as the sacrifice for our sin, shedding his blood to cover the sins that that none of us could pay for on our own. Jesus paid for those sins. He forgave us of our rebellion. And when we trust in him, the shed blood of Christ is applied to us so that we can come back into that right relationship with our creator, God. And and so just like that young man at Judson College, we too today, we too love because we live. And we live because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it's because of our understanding of God's great love for us, shown to us in Christ, that, that we love We love others because that's the call of the one who gave himself for us. Jesus, who died for us, calls us to love one another. The Apostle Peter in our passage in verse 22, he he opens our passage with the words, having purified, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Those words there, having purified at the beginning of verse 22, the the word there in the Greek is hagnizo. 
that, that's a form of the word hagios, which we described last week, the, the word in Greek for holiness, to be holy, to be set apart. Last week we talked about God's call to us to be set apart from the world, to not conform to the ways of the world, right? To, to be nonconformist. We, we looked at that last week. To be hagios, to be holy. And, and here is a form of that word, having purified, hagnizo, which in the Greek is in the perfect tense. And what that means, friends, being in the perfect tense, that word hagnizo, what it means is this. It's a past action with ongoing consequences. So in other words, Peter says, having purified yourselves, a past action that's already taken place in our hearts, we've been purified. How? Again, because of what Jesus did for us and when we put our trust in him, in one sense, we've been purified of our sins. So it's a past action that's already taken place, but there are ongoing consequences to this action. And what are the ongoing consequences? The ongoing, ongoing consequences is that our purification in our salvation will now play itself out as we continue to grow in Christ's likeness. And one of the ways that our salvation plays itself out ongoing is in our call to love, to love one another. So, so in other words, Peter is basically saying here, having been saved by the gospel... Now, live out the gospel by your love for one another. This is what Peter's calling us to here in verse 22. And now Peter uses two different words for love in the Greek. He says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Now here, brotherly love in the Greek is the word Philadelphia. Now, you might be familiar with that. Philadelphia out east is called the city of brotherly love. And in the Greek, the word Philadelphia refers to brotherly love. It's the, it's the kind of love you have for, for your family. Okay, And so here, Peter's basically saying, you are family. Love one another with a brotherly love. You're brothers, you're sisters in Christ now. But it's more than just a brotherly love. He then goes on, love one another with this brotherly love. But then he says, love one another earnestly. And the love he speaks of there, he uses the word agapao. Agapao, which is a form of the word agape. And agape love, friends, is a selfless love. It's a serving love. It's a love that seeks to give rather than receive. It's the highest form of love the Bible talks about. It's the kind of love that Jesus displayed for us. So, so Peter is basically saying here, love your brothers and sisters in Christ with this selfless agape love, the kind of love that Christ demonstrated to us. Love one another with this kind of love. And so, friends, we need to recognize here that the primary mark above all other distinguishing characteristics of the church, the primary mark of a faithful church will be a people who live out this selfless and sincere love for one another. Now, of course, what Peter is calling us to here is simply a restatement of what he himself had heard from our Lord Jesus, right? Right? Remember just a few months ago when we were in John chapter 13? Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35? In that upper room discourse prior to his arrest and crucifixion? 
Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, so friends, what Peter's sharing here in verse 22, this isn't anything new. He's sharing with us the command that he heard from the Lord. That night when he was sitting in the upper room with his fellow disciples, the night of Jesus' arrest and, and trials and ultimately his crucifixion, the night that Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, it was there that Peter first heard this revolutionary teaching. And now in verse 22, he's calling us to this same kind of love. Love one another, a brotherly love, with an agapao love, a, 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 a love that is selfless, a love that is serving, a love that is a love like Jesus calls us to love. Now, when you look at this passage, friends, what, what does this passage assume? I, I think there's at least three things that, that we can assume from Jesus' words here in John chapter 13. The, the first thing that this passage assumes is that we're following Jesus together in community, right? We, we, we can't love one another if we're not in fellowship with, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Christianity was always meant to be lived out in community with other believers. Love one another. There's no such thing, friends, as a Lone Ranger Christian. Right? You understand that. We're called to be in fellowship with one another. Living out love for one another. I I was out recently uh, buying some hunting gear. My son and I are going to be going deer hunting soon. And and I was out buying some hunting gear. And I was talking to a man there in the store. And and, uh, we were talking hunting. And somehow the topic came up to to our occupations. And I mentioned that I was a pastor. And this guy made an interesting statement. A statement I've heard many times over the years. When he found out I was a pastor, he said, Well, my church is in the woods. My church is in the woods. Now, friends, the woods are great. I love being out in the woods. But I'll tell you something. The woods are no substitute for the church. This idea that you can experience God and grow with God in isolation as an individual, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. The Bible calls us to live out and exercise and grow our faith in the context of community. Jesus says love one another. We need to be engaged in relationships. The second thing that Jesus is teaching here assumes is that we're loving one another, right? That, that we're actually doing what Jesus calls us to do, that we're loving one another with this selfless, servant-hearted, agape love that he calls us to. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but Jason, I mean, that's hard to do. I mean, there, there's some hard people here in the church to love, Jason. And friends, I get that, all right? I mean, not any of you, but there's, there's, there's some hard people. I mean, that's just reality, right? As, as human beings, we all have flaws. We all have our rough edges, and, and there are some people that we find it hard to love. And, and so how do we actually do this? I mean, Jesus is calling us to this, but is this even realistic? Friends, it is. But the only way that we can love in this way is if we keep our eyes on Jesus. 
How do we love those who are difficult to love? We look to Jesus, and we look to his example of selfless, servant-hearted love. And we remember that, you know what? I'm not always so easy to love either. But even in my difficulties, God first loved me. And I look to Jesus, and I look to his example, and I remember what he's done for me. And I remember that just before Jesus said these words, Jesus got down on his knees, and he took off the robe around his waist, and he used it to wash the dirty, smelly, dusty feet of his disciples. And he says, this is how. This is how you're to love one another. This is what love looks like. And so we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. The, the third thing that Jesus' call here assumes is that we're doing all of this in the context of relationships with the world. Right? Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, as Christians, friends, we're not called to isolate ourselves from the world. We're to be in the world, engaged with the world, in relationship with the world, in the world, but not of the world. Because how in the world is anyone outside of the church going to see us model our love for one another if we're not doing that in the midst of the secular culture around us? Right? So as the church, we need to be engaged in these relationships of love with one another as a visible testimony to the watching world so that they can know the difference that the love of Christ makes in a person's life. Friends, how are you doing in these areas? How, how, are, we, how are we as a church doing in these areas? This past Monday, I had a fun opportunity to engage in some, some pastoral ministry with, with three other guys from our church. I had an opportunity to hang out and, and minister and counsel guys like Dave Tolberg, one of our elders, and Michael Malley, who's a, a young man at our church, Joel Osmondson, another young man at our church. Great opportunity to ministry, minister to these guys. It happened to be out at the Chisago Lakes Golf Course, but it was, uh, it was a good afternoon hanging out with these three brothers. As we were talking, I started uh, visiting with Joe Osmondson, who, who was sharing a golf cart with me. And we were talking about our kids and what they're involved in, and, you know, the topic of sports came up. Joe's daughter, Kaya, is one of my daughter Addie's best friends, and Kaya's been involved in cross-country at the high school. And as a ninth grader, she's the top runner in the high school. She's, she's winning cross-country meets and breaking personal records and it's just it's been awesome to see the success she's had at such a young age running cross-country and and joe made an interesting comment to me he said jason the crazy thing is she she's just scratching the surface she doesn't even realize her full potential yet for all the success she's having she still has room to grow and I was thinking about that this week because I think that's what Peter is getting at here, right? Like an elite runner, as Christians, we know that we've never fully arrived when it comes to our call to love one another. We know that there's always room to grow. We know that we're always striving to set the bar higher and higher, that, that even when we, we succeed and win, that we can even do better and go further and do more in our call to love one another. This is why Peter admonishes us in this verse to love one another earnestly. 
earnestly. That, that word means eagerly, fervently, without ceasing. Friends, as a church, as individuals, our call to love one another should always be a call where we are seeking to raise the bar higher and higher, striving for a new personal best, striving for a new best as a church, right? It's a love that never reaches the finish line until the day we go home to glory or when the Lord comes back for us. Love one another earnestly with a sincere brotherly love, Peter tells us. That, that's the first fundamental right? What does it mean to be a Christian? What are the basics of the faith? Love one another. We're a people set apart for love. Secondly, the second fundamental of faith that Peter shares with us here, he says we're a people who are set apart by the word. Set apart by the word. As we go on into verses 23 and 25, Peter reminds us that the basis of of our salvation, he, he reminds us that the basis of our salvation Where our true hope is found is in the word of God. Look again at verses 23 through 24. Peter says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. It's the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever what peter's saying to us here friends is that our hope as god's people our hope isn't in finite humanity or 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 the or the finite perishable things of this world our hope as god's people is founded upon the imperishable living and abiding word of god And when Peter speaks of the word of God here, he's referring both to the message of the gospel and to the scriptures as a whole. He says that's where our hope is. It's not in perishable things, like like the stuff of this world. It's not in in humanity. It's not in, in, in finite things. Our hope is in the imperishable truth and promises of God's word. I've seen this reality in some very powerful ways over the last five years in my wife's battle with with cancer. Many of you know a little over five years ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Very serious, aggressive kind of cancer, and we spent over a year going through all the treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. You guys took care of our family and loved us well through that time. By God's grace, my wife's been doing great lately. She's, she's through all the treatment, but she has ongoing therapeutic treatment that she has to take for the sake of keeping her cancer at bay. And so she goes in to the oncologist once a month, and she gets a shot, and they put in medicine that basically helps suppress the cancer from returning. And, and so she continues to fight this battle, and it'll be something that she'll fight in this world until she goes home to meet the Lord. And so over the course of this journey, as you can imagine, we've had literally hundreds of opportunities to go to the oncologist's office down in Minneapolis. And we've sat in doctor's appointments, and we've sat in the waiting room, and we've sat in the chemotherapy infusion center. And without a doubt, one of the things that we witness almost every time we're there is the reality of people who receive difficult news. 
And I'm going to tell you something, friends. I don't know for sure, but I could almost guarantee those who have the living hope of God's promises in their heart from those who don't have that eternal hope that we know as God's people. There's a marked difference between those who have the promises of God's word versus those who are just living for the hopes of this world. And there's a great despair that you see in the faces of people when they're told by their doctor, we've done everything we can. The the treatments aren't working anymore. You were denied into that new clinical trial. I'm sorry. And you can see the despair fall over people who don't have a greater hope. There's a very real difference between those who who have hope in Jesus Christ, who have the hope of God's word to lean on. It makes all the difference in the world, friends, when you face those trials, when you face those hardships. To illustrate the incomparable power of God's word, Peter points us to a passage from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. He he makes a quote here from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And and let me just give you some background context to this passage that Peter quotes here. In Isaiah 40, the book of Isaiah turns to what is called the book of comfort. it's, It's the introduction to the final third of Isaiah's book, the last 20 chapters. The first two thirds of Isaiah's book are the books of judgment, prophecies of Israel's impending judgment at the hands of God as a result of their rebellion. And and God has been delivering these prophecies through Isaiah over the course of 40 chapters of God's impending judgment, how the Babylonians were going to come and how they were going to destroy Jerusalem, how they were going to carry away all of God's people into exile. That's been the whole first two-thirds of the book of Isaiah. And now, in Isaiah chapter 40, God tells Isaiah to begin to share a message of hope with God's people. And Isaiah is wrestling with doubts and questions because for the last 40 chapters, God's been sharing nothing but doom and gloom and judgment and exile. And and now Isaiah's like, God, wait, what? What what do you want me to share? A a word of hope? How can there be hope, God? You've just told me that we're going to be destroyed and you're going to send your people away. And this is where... These words in chapter 40 pick up. God says to Isaiah, cry. And Isaiah says, what shall I cry? Right? Like like you've just told me everything is doomed. There's no hope in this world. We're going to be carried away in judgment. And God says, cry. All flesh is like grass. All its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And God goes on for the rest of the book Isaiah to share words of promise and comfort and hope about how he's ultimately going to deliver his people. He's going to restore them back to Jerusalem. He's going to save his people. And so here in this quote that Peter shares, 
What Peter is alluding to here are these promises of hope that God has given to Israel, promises to restore them after prophesying their destruction and exile. And Isaiah and Peter, what they're saying here, what God's inspired them to share and remind us of, is that while the nations of the world might seem strong and powerful, while the nation of Babylon might take you away and destroy your cities and carry you off into exile, while Peter shares with his fellow believers 2,000 years ago, while the governors around you might be oppressive, while your employers might be oppressing you because of your faith, while you're going through these trials, these reminders speak to us that the promise of God's word is greater than anything this world can throw at us. And God tells us that the things of this world, governments and oppression and trials, all who stand against God's people, they are like the flowers that wither, the grass that withers and the flowers that fall. But God's promises, God's word stands forever. That's why Peter shares this quote here, friends. And we can take encouragement from these words because even in our day and age, in our day and age when Christianity is increasingly being marginalized in our culture, when governments around our world seem to be growing more and more oppressive, when the future often seems dim, we too can remember where our true hope is found. The word of the Lord remains forever. That's our hope. Our hope's not in the perishable things of this world. Governments and, and medicine and, and, and legal and politics. That's not where our hope is ultimately found. Our hope is ultimately found in the promises of God's word. See, unlike the frail and fallible people and things our world so often puts their hopes in, Peter's reminding us here that God's word is living and abiding. As the living word, it alone has the power to bring life where before there was only death. As the abiding word, once it's been embraced, it never ceases to bear kingdom fruit in those who put their hope in it. That's the power of God's word, friends. I, I, I was thinking about the power of God's word recently. I've been reading a great biography titled Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. If you're familiar with Elizabeth Elliot, she, she was one of the leading evangelical voices of the 20th century. Had a profound impact on, on the church. And, and if you know Elizabeth Elliot's story, it begins when she was in college and she met a young man named Jim Elliot. And her and Jim Elliot followed God's call on their life to go and share the good news of the gospel with people who had never heard of Jesus before. Their desire to honor God's call led them to the jungles of Ecuador. And there in the jungles of Ecuador, Jim Elliott and his wife and their four other missionary families who had joined them sought to reach out to a tribe in the jungles that had never heard the gospel. They were the, the Wadani tribe. In those days, they were called the Akas, which meant fierce See, they were headhunters, and they would kill anybody who wandered into their jungle territory. 
But these people recognized that they needed the gospel. And so Jim Elliott and his wife and their families, they moved into the jungles and, and they, they sought ways to communicate with this tribe and to make inroads and, and to break in for the sake of opening a door to share the good news of the gospel. And after months of trying to make contact with this tribe, Jim Elliott and his four missionary partners had finally started building some bridges and, and they had landed their plane on the banks of a tributary of the Amazon River where they had set up a camp and, and they were living there for days hoping that they would have an opportunity to have a face-to-face contact with this Wadani tribe who had never heard the name of Jesus. After a few initial friendly contacts, these missionaries had radioed back to their wives with excitement that that contact had been made, that we think we're building a rapport, that we might have an opportunity to even be going into the jungles to visit their village. The last report they gave their wives was very hopeful. And then one day in 1956, as these missionaries waited for these tribes people to return. A war party came out of the jungle. And these five young American missionaries in their mid-twenties were speared to death by the Wadani Indians. Five days went by before anybody got word that these missionaries had perished. It wasn't until a search party led by the Ecuadorian government into the jungle with soldiers found their bodies laying across the banks of the river, riddled with spears. Imagine how devastating that must have been to a young wife with a brand new baby and four widows now who were left in this world without their husbands, five without their husbands. Elizabeth Elliot, a year later, along with a woman named Rachel Saint, who was the sister of one of the other martyred missionaries, they moved back into the jungle. She took her kids and moved back into the jungle to continue the mission of reaching out to the Wadani people. The Wadani people were so stunned by these women who desired to live among them after they had literally speared their husbands to death that that they became intrigued and fascinated by who are these people? What kind of people are these? Because the Wadani, for generations, their lives have been characterized by revenge and killing and warfare. In fact, anthropologists tell us that before the Wadani ultimately turned to Jesus Christ, they were less than a generation away from going into extinction because they were killing each other off in revenge. One of the Wadani who had put their trust in Jesus was a man named Minkiah. You can see him here in the picture. Minkiah, as a teenager, was one of the men who killed those five American missionaries. And Minkiah ultimately came to trust Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I had the privilege about 20 years ago of meeting Minkiah when he came here to America and shared the story of how Jesus had transformed their tribe from a people of hatred and warfare and revenge into a people who knew God's love. This is a picture of Micaiah. He's about 70 years there standing next to Steve Saint, the son of one of the the martyred missionaries, Nate Saint. Steve Saint, the the, the nephew of Rachel Saint, who moved back into the jungle, grew up with the Wadani Indians. He calls Minkiah his grandfather, the man who killed his father. 
That's how the love of Jesus transformed their lives. Micaiah, when he spoke and shared the story of what God had done, he says, we lived angry, hating and killing for no reason until they brought us God's markings, God's word. Now those of us who walk God's trail live happily and in peace. Friends, I want you to know this morning, if God's word has the power to transform a violent Amazonian tribe of headhunters, it has the power to transform anyone, even you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, God's word has the power to change us, to transform us, to make us new. That's the hope of God's word, friends. It's the hope of the world. It can be your hope, too if you'll trust it. And so Peter's reminded us here that, that we've been set apart to love, we've been set apart by God's word. And then lastly in our passage, he reminds us that we've been set apart to grow. Starting in chapter two, verses one through three, Peter says, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. The words there, put away in the Greek, it, it refers to taking off your soiled garments. That's what put away means. It's like, it's like dirty, smelly, stinky garments. It's like, like this summer when I was out doing yard work, I was reseeding my lawn, and I was out there, you know, digging and laying dirt and planting seed, and I came in, and I was just covered in sweat, and I stunk, and I was dirty. I took off those dirty garments. I didn't even bother to wash them. I just threw them in the trash. That's what Peter's talking about here when he says put away. That's what it means. It means take off your dirty, filthy garments, throw them away, What are we to take off? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Friends, notice something. Every single one of these characteristics that Peter says we're to take off, throw away, these are things that wage war against our call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Malice, hatred, right? Envy, being jealous of one another, hypocrisy, putting on a show for others. Deceit, lying, slander, speaking ill of one another. All those things destroy the fellowship of the body of Christ. Peter says, get rid of them, throw them away. Friends, you want to know the quickest way to destroy a church? Quickest way to destroy a church, a bunch of stinky people. You get a bunch of stinkers in there, it'll ruin a church. No one wants to be around a stinky Christian, yet alone a whole church of them. And this is why Peter says, you got to put this stuff away. Take it off. Malice, envy, slander, all this stuff. This is unfit for God's people. This is unfit as we seek to live out Christ's love in this world. And so Peter says, put this stuff away. It stunts our growth as Christians. And and instead, we want to embrace something that will truly help us grow. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Those of you who have been parents know that when a baby is newly born and in those first days, man, when they're longing for the milk, you know it, (laughs) right? I mean, they'll scream and they'll cry, longing for that milk. Why do they long for the milk, friends? Because it satisfies their cravings. It provides the nourishment they need. And in the very same way, Peter says to us, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. 
It's what satisfies. It's what nourishes. It's what helps us grow. The milk he's speaking of there is the milk of God's word. We, we are to long for God's word. So we put off all of these things that, that hinder our growth as believers, and we long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word, which helps us to grow into salvation, to grow, to be like Christ. That's what we're called to. And it's not just any kind of milk. It, it's pure milk. The, the word there in the Greek is adelos. It means unadulterated, not tainted or corrupted. So, so it's milk that is rooted in God's truth, not in false teaching. And, and the church for 2,000 years has always had to be on guard against false teaching, which would corrupt the purity of God's true milk, God's true word. And so even today, we still need to be on guard against false teaching, which strays from the pure truth of God's word. He then goes on, it's spiritual milk. The word there in the Greek is logikos. It's, it's, a, it's a play on the word logos, which means the word. It, it means the rational, reasonable word of God. Reasonable word of God. In other words, friends, Christianity is not based on supernatural, mystical experiences. It's based on the rational, reasonable, revealed truth of God's word. That's why we study God's word and we don't go off and sit in a closet somewhere and meditate, right? Because it's not about what we subjectively experience. It's about what God has objectively revealed to us as truth. We need to stay in the word. So we stay rooted in the word. It's what leads us and guides us into God's truth. It's his revelation to us to help us grow. Peter says, long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word, which will help you grow up into salvation. So friends, stay in the word. Test every other teaching by God's word. Don't assume anything, even even anything you hear from me, test it by God's word. Is it true? Is it logical? Is it rational? Is it reasonable? Is it corresponding to what God has revealed to us? Because God's word is what we need to help us grow. So we test all things because God's word is sufficient. And then to highlight this point, Peter ends our passage today with the statement, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Quoting David in Psalm 34, 8. Now why does Peter add this little statement here at the end? Well, friends, it's a rhetorical question. Peter is saying here, if you've tasted the Lord's goodness... You know how good he is. If you've tasted the Lord's goodness, you know you just want more and more. You know it's not hard to long for the pure spiritual milk when you've tasted it. We know what that's like, don't we, friends? That's why a lot of us keep coming back here every Sunday morning, isn't it? It's because we've tasted just how good God's word is. And we want more. That's what Peter's talking about. Once you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, friends, there's nothing better. Have you tasted that goodness? Some of you might be here this morning or watching online and you're just here wondering, curious, exploring, what's this all about? I want to encourage you, friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. Get into the Word. Get to know God as He's revealed in Scripture. Get to know the hope of the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture. Get to know the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you so much that he died for your sins so that you could be reconciled to him. Friends, when you taste 
and see that the Lord is good, you'll come to know that there's nothing in this world like him. I pray you know that reality. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for these words that you've given the Apostle Peter to encourage us, to help us grow, to know you more, to love you more. Lord, I I pray that each one of us here this morning would remain committed to these fundamentals of the faith, that we would stick to these basics, the call to love, the call to be rooted and grounded in your word, the the true hope of, of all of us as believers that we would be committed to growing in our salvation as we, as we look to the word and we long for the word and as we put off the things of this world that, that stunt our growth, that we might be conformed more and more into your image, Lord. Help us in that. Help us stick to these fundamentals of the faith. And Lord, as we do that, may we be living, walking, breathing testaments to the world that the Lord is good. And may others want to taste and see that reality for themselves as they see the power of you at work in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your great name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning, friends. It comes from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you and have a terrific week. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.